copy of the scriptures to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. As a way of getting this in our ears, I want to just read the first nine verses, and we're only going to talk about the first couple. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, there's a lot in these letters, and <clears throat> I've been floating around a lot of stuff over the last uh, 10 months or so, and I think it's time to settle on some verse-by-verse verse and some letters now. And so I will be doing some First Peter, and then also going into some Old Testament as, as we can throughout the year. But there's always an explanation when we start a letter. There's always an occasion. There's always something that we need to know about it that we may or may not be able to gain from just reading the letter in and of itself. Now, it's okay not to know this stuff. For example, it's okay not to know exactly who Peter is and why he wrote this and what's going on here in the particular world. But we can look at Dr. Luke's writing, we can look at Acts, we can see the other writings of Paul, and we can sort of piece together what's happening, and the good thing is over the last few thousands of years, we've had other people do a lot of that work for us. We're not living in obscurity, we're not in a place where we don't have good archaeological data and historical data, but I say that to say this again, that it's not necessary. It's not necessary for us to grasp all of the ins and outs of what was going on with these particular Jewish Christians and why Peter wrote this letter. Because within the context of his writing, it's sufficient for our instruction. It's sufficient for our encouragement, for the power of God through these writings to give us what he wants us to have. And so don't ever feel like, well, I just don't know this stuff, or don't ever put such emphasis on the historicity of things that you miss the point, that you miss the point. But all that said, let's ask ourselves for a minute, who, who is Peter? Well, Peter's name is Simon. Jesus called him Peter. Jesus called him Peter for many different reasons, but in one sense, he did so because Simon's just a hard guy. He's like a rock. 
the word kepha or petra in the Greek. It means rock. And a rock is something that, you know, from the context of its imagery, is hard. It's, it's like a foundation, etc. We even see Jesus talking to Peter. Peter's like, you know, I'll die for you. He's whacking ears off at the arrest and all this kind of stuff. So we know who Peter is, but yet Peter didn't really know who he was. Peter didn't really know who he was. And a lot of us don't know who we are. When it comes to our faith, we are just little mini-me's of other things and other people. And Peter was no different during the time of Christ and during his ministry. He had it all together. He was hyper-confident. But yet, he denied Christ. This is the Peter that wrote these letters. This is the Peter who would be willing to lay his life down for the Christ. This is the Peter who was known across all of Palestine as this zealous disciple, the one that you didn't mess with. That was, he was sort of like the heavy. Let's carry two swords around. I got you back, Jesus. And then when the time came and the arrest was made, Peter indignantly would say, I do not know who you're talking about. I do not know this man. And Jesus told him that he would do that. We also see the story in the scripture where Peter is restored by Jesus. After that amazing rejection. I mean, you think about it for a second. In the world that we live in and, and, and the tapestry of our Christian experience, no matter how old we are, how long we've been in the evangelical world that we live in, um, we have probably been taught or had the idea, you know, you can't reject Jesus. You can't deny Jesus. You can't say you don't believe. And that's just the furthest thing from the truth. So they were taught then because of fear of social issues not to be honest about the struggles with our faith. Not to be honest when we go, eh, you know, I've been thinking. I'm just not quite sure the Bible is. Have you ever had those thoughts? Or have, you, or have you ever watched a video on the History Channel and go, oh, this is making some sense here. You know, these spacemen that built all this stuff wrote this stuff to trick us. Yeah, that's is it, this is it, all right. You know, and I mean, there's usually an opportunity for doubt. Now, I will tell you, when it comes to the authority and the power of the written word, I've had very little times in my life where I've really labored over it. Like, is this true? I've had these thoughts, I'm going, this is some nonsense. And then almost immediately, there's something powerfully supernatural about what God the Spirit has done for me, is that I've never really labored over that. But I have labored over whether I was in the faith, time and time again. And measured those things based on what was taught to me through osmosis, through culture. Oh, well, you know, you're, you know you're a child of God if, and then always, you know you're a true believer if, and all these conditions, all these tests, all these things, or, or you know someone who is the epitome of what true faith looks like, and then we measure ourselves by them for our entire lives, always wanting, always lacking. And then heavens to Betsy if that person who is our role model fails or that person who is the, is our spiritual example 
or our spiritual mentor decides something's wrong with their faith. And that's why I'm glad that God recorded people like Peter in the Bible. Because I can so relate to Peter. I started to go into 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and talk about Paul, where he says, I want to become all things to all people that I might win some. And I've really been playing in my mind about that all week, back and to and back and to and preparing next Sunday to start in 1 Peter. And I thought, you know, let's just go with this. Because I think the example of Peter will probably fit more of our lives than any person in the Bible. If nothing else, it'll give us, it'll give us a, an easier picture of the reality of the human condition. And sometimes when we hear those words, when we're in this Christian bubble, and we live in a bubble, people, let's just be honest. We live in a tiny, little, eensy-teensy, microscopic, blind bubble. No matter how broad our experiences are, no matter how millions of miles we travel, no matter how many cultures we live in, we have blinders on and we are looking through multi-layers of certain types of lenses and it is almost impossible for us not to. It's almost impossible for us not to. The horror comes in that is when we think that our viewpoint is the right one. Or we think our way of seeing the world is the correct biblical worldview. Beloved, we are, we are so far away as American Christians from a correct biblical worldview that we would, we would see the authentic, the authentic worldview of Scripture and we would burn it to the ground as a witch. And you'll see that. Anytime there's a, a, a reformed mindset, anytime there's any, any sense of, of correction in the culture, historically, those who were just at, they're not even doing anything, they're not like, let's burn it to the ground. No, it's like, hey, can we talk? Have you ever noticed that? It's not, let's burn it to the ground, let's revolt, let's rebel. No, it's, hey, I got a couple of questions. Don't you ask questions, buddy. See, that's sort of where it is. And because we live in a world that way, we don't ask ourselves questions. And because we don't ask ourselves questions, Christian parents are scared to death of secular schools. Which I would suppose to you, and I would, I would, I would posit this, you ought to be scared to death of Christian schools. Not holistically, but just generally speaking. I've spent a lot of time in academia, and I can tell you this, I have been taught by many atheists who thought they were born again. And then I've had many professing unbelievers that had more understanding of truth <laughs> than the PhDs that mentored me. The point being is the Word of God cannot be, cannot be set aside. No matter what we go through, no matter what questions we ask, no matter what experiences we have, no matter what infiltrates our lives, if we think that protecting truth is our job, we have misunderstood the whole idea of God's sovereignty and power in the, in the first place. And so I say question it all. 
Ask every question. Expose yourself to anything that interests you and say, yay, this makes sense, and sit peaceably in it knowing that our God reigns. And his word cannot be set aside. It does everything that it was intended to do every time that it is proclaimed, every time that it is read, and every time that it is considered in the mind of believers or unbelievers by the Spirit of God himself. He does the work. Where do I get that? Hebrews 4. prophet Isaiah. God himself. I send my word forth and it accomplishes my purposes. The word of God is living and breathing, sharper than any two-edged sword. But when we think about ourselves, beloved, why would I say these things? Because Peter walked around in the ministry of four years with Jesus at heightened levels of fear. Constant fear. Let's think about it for a second. I mean, he's always ready to give an answer, right? That's, that's to be counted for something. I mean, think about Peter for a second. Everywhere you look, Jesus would ask a question, Peter's speaking up. Jesus needs a volunteer, Peter's falling on the floor, trying to get up front. Who do you say that I am? Ah, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for men have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. See, God speaking through Peter, and Peter didn't even know. He's just doing it. Constant state of fear. The Last Supper. Jesus talks about being deceived. I mean, uh, being betrayed. Peter, is it me? Oh, am I going to do it? Oh, no, I don't want to do it. Is it going to be me? I mean, that's fear, y'all. I mean, this is not a grounded man. This is not a man who is solid. This is not a man nowhere in the, in the New Testament narratives. This is, Peter is not a man to be modeled. He's a man to be pitied for all intents and purposes. He's unstable in all of his ways. And he lives in constant agony, constant fear, and constant anxiety. Well, if I stay close to Jesus, he'll be safe. You're not going to die on my watch. And Jesus goes, get behind me, Satan. I mean, how do you say you are the son of the living God and then be called Satan in the same breath? Because that's Peter. That's James Tippins. <laughs> that's you. So, I mean, it's important for us to contemplate a minute. So even if we don't have the historical record of, 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 of you know, what this dispersion is and all these different places. I mean, we know where Galatia is based on the Bible, but where's Bithynia, you know? And it doesn't matter. I tell you, what you, can do, you can pull out a map, you can look at all this kind of stuff, you can see it's all right there. <laughs> I mean, they didn't jump on the turbojet, so they sort of walked everywhere they were. So that's about how you got there. If you could walk it, you could get there. But you know what you can do? You can read the New Testament and you can understand who Peter is. And you can read the examples. And you can know that this guy just couldn't rest. 
And then we get into that and we start to study Peter. And then in our infinite wisdom as human beings, as educated Westerners, we have all the godly answers and we have all the theological uh, you know, foundations. And then therefore we now can conclude that Peter was not a believer until after the resurrection. <laughs> you ever heard that? That's hogwash. That's silly. That's, that's stretching. That's reaching. It's not something that the scripture gives us the authority to just subject Peter to. When Jesus says, commands, follow me, and someone followed, we take that following as a credible profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ until such a time as Jesus says, no, the son of perdition, this one was. Everyone else, we take it at face value. This scripture wasn't written for us to parse out the details of when someone was and was not converted. The scripture was given to us that we may understand God's sovereignty. And by understanding it, I mean being able to, even without really apprehending the depths of it, because we can't, resting in the truth of it. And let me just phrase it this way, not just resting in the truth of it, but resting in the promises of him. I've spent much of this calendar year working through many things. Things that I never wanted to open up in my mind. Things I never wanted to face. And thank God for his sovereignty. Beloved, it's okay to not be able to rest in God's sovereignty. Just like Trey has said many times this year, it is okay to not be okay. Part of that is it's okay to not be able to rest in God's sovereignty. God is not up there going, uh, if I could just take a second. No. This is not our father. It may be symbolic of, it may be the mindset we have about worldly fathers and worldly mothers or whatever, but this is not God's motherly and fatherly attitude toward his people. It is always gentle. It is always loving. It is always yearning. It is always patient. It is always kind. It is always gracious. And people don't like that because it gets them off the hook of their self-righteousness. And it makes their working and striving and purity in this culture nothing. And it subjects our way of thinking and our ideas to nothing except God's sovereignty. And as Peter was restored, so you have been restored. And as others are flailing around in this life and wondering how they're ever going to find a place of solidarity, a, a, a place of peace, a place of hope, if they're ever going to find true connection and intimacy, 
and they're struggling, but they can't be authentic. They can't be honest. They can't be real. They have to pretend to not feel and think the way they do because even if it's not said, it's just sort of felt. Beloved, we can, because of the grace we've received, give grace to others. And I think when I read the New Testament, y'all know my heartbeat is the Johannine literature, John's writings. You know it is. But I see so much shepherding in Peter that I don't see anywhere else in the Bible. Because I think Peter, as he grew up Jewish in a time where it was literal death in every count to not make the cut. And then the very thing that he threw that all away for, he denies. And then to be restored. You know what happened when Peter was restored? Other people never changed their view of him. Because even when the Lord restores us, even when we've completely ruined things, even in relationships, when we've sinned against other people and we fix it or we're forgiven and we do better, other people will always look at us and go, oh, yeah, that's the guy that, you know, did, you know. Oh, yeah, things are okay now. But you know what they did? You know what they said to me? You know, what they, you know how they acted? You can never live it up. That's good. It doesn't matter. Because people with that attitude have forgotten the grace of God for them. Peter has not forgotten the grace of God. And the way I know that is you read these two letters and you see it. I mean, this man, he's writing to these people. And he listen to these first two verses. Listen to what he says. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the holiness of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. There's so much in that. There's so much in that. And Peter, just like Paul and other places, I mean, these weren't just, these were not leaders of the early church. I want you to understand we have an incredibly backward way of looking at what spiritual leadership is. Spiritual leadership only and is ever only absolute slavery to others. To become a slave to others. That's why I was so to the tension of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I became a slave to others, Paul says. I am not a slave to anyone, he says. And I have all authority to exercise every right that is mine in the gospel. But I make myself a slave to all people. And I'm not saying you have to. I will, though. That's what Paul says. But then Paul writes to the church of Philippi and he says, 
have this mind among you, which is already presently yours in Christ this very second, as you read these words, that though he was God, he did not take equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, a slave, obedient unto death on a cross. This is the lordship of Jesus, the God-man. This is the leadership of Jesus, the creator of the cosmos. The leadership of God is to become nothing and be a slave. To take off all of his clothes and to get down on his knees and to do something that a Jewish prisoner is not allowed by law to do because it's so disgusting that even a slave can't do it if Jewish blood runs in their body and that is to wash the feet of another person. Only a Gentile slave could wash the feet of another person. And the God of the cosmos in his leadership, in his authority, in his kingship disrobed naked and washed the feet of men who thought him garbage for doing so. That is leadership. And that is only ever leadership. No one who is a leader in the gospel is in charge of anything except taking off their clothes and digging the garbage and the dirt between the toes of the people who hate them. Judas. What? No! This is not okay, you see? This is where Peter could not stomach. Remember Peter at the foot washing? Peter's like, whoa, 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 hey, ho, slow your roll here, master, teacher. You're not washing my feet. I forbid it. Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no place with me. Okay, then. Here's my head, here's my, just bathe me then, all of me. If this is the way it is, just do it all, I'll submit. I can imagine Peter tried to wash everybody's feet for weeks after that, right? Hey, you gonna wash your feet, I'm gonna be like, you ain't gonna wash your feet, I'm gonna wash your feet. Mimicking is not being, by the way. you can only posture for so long until the reality of our hearts and minds come out. And this is Peter. Jesus says to Peter, feed my sheep. And now Peter is an apostle of Christ. What does that mean? Well, Paul had to defend his apostleship. Why? Because his leader as part of the Sanhedrin, his his leadership power according to the world standards, was erased. And now to be a messenger, the word apostle, a spokesperson, you're nothing, you're no one, but you speak for the one who is. By the authority of Christ, I write these things to you, I do not lie, Paul said that many times over. My spirit gives testimony to the spirit of God within me. As he tell the church of Corinth. And I stand before you and the conscience of all of you and before God. 
And you know what kind of persons we are. You know how we worked among you. You know how we served you. You know how we wouldn't even take money from you. Why didn't Paul take what was due him? To be supported by the gospel. Because he did not want to be a slave to someone else's pocketbook. He wanted to be a slave to the gospel. And if you've never been there, then you've not been in ministry long. When you're doing everything that you think is right and all you're trying to do is love people and the people who make all the decisions because of how much they give come to you and say, James, we've got to have a discussion. We're going to have to make some cuts. And I remember being asked, if you step down, we can't really afford things right now, but if you step down, we'll give you six months severance of your salary. In one check. And if you don't step down, we're firing these five people and their families. Mafia much? Paul never had that problem. I'll tell you what you can do with what you haven't given me. Keep it. Leadership is slavery. I remember years ago, one of my mentors said to me several different things in a conversation over a couple of year period related to leadership. One of them was that a man just going somewhere and he turns around, no one's following him, he's just taking a walk, he's not leading anybody. And on another occasion, he looked at me and he said this very direct, he says, James, the day you ever say you're the pastor, that you're in charge, is the day that you stop becoming any type of leader. He said, because you're not in charge of anything. What's that mean? I have to, under, I have to rearrange what I mean when, when I think about rule. What is the rule of Christ? What is the apostleship of Peter? The apostleship of Peter is one who lays down his life for the sake of the elect. So here's Peter defending his apostleship. But he's not saying, I'm in charge. I'm the right hand of Jesus, y'all. No, he's saying, I'm a messenger. Don't look at the man. Listen to the message. That's what he's saying. Don't worry about me. Don't worry about the man behind the curtain. Just pay attention to the words. Pay attention to the words. Pastors can't make you do anything. Pastors can't lord over the church. Apostles can't lord over Christ's people. Because Christ doesn't lord over them in that way. Remember last week when I made mention of the fact that the marriage supper of the Lamb? I mean, you see that imagery in John's apocalypse? When did apocalypse become bad? That word means revealed things. (laughs) I mean, think about it. What happens... 
is that Jesus is serving his church at the tables of the banquet. Peter, an apostle of Christ. So when you see that, when you read that, I want you to think this way. I know it seems like a lot. My goodness, you just done 15 minutes explaining the idea of spiritual leadership. Yes, because it's necessary. I don't want to assume that I keep the right mindset when it comes to what an apostle is, nor do I want to assume that you and I are walking together in that understanding. It's written there for a reason. Peter's like, listen to the message here. Jesus Christ is speaking I'm just a pair of hands. I'm just a mouth. And if it weren't me, it'd be someone else. To steal away from the King James, it's sort of tongue-in-cheek and a little bit funny and a little bit edgy at the same time, but it's like I've always told the brothers, we need to be half as effective as Balaam's ass in speaking the oracles of God. And God can speak through that animal, and God can speak through a bush on fire. He can speak through me. But it's not about me. But yet, sometimes the culture does that, right? Sometimes the culture sets men up on pedestals. Sometimes the culture sets women up on pedestals. Sometimes the culture sets offices up on pedestals. And and, and, and I don't want to get into politics, but look. When did public service become power? Because that's the nature of humanity. And it's wrong, even though it's common, especially when we tie it to the Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter, an exile in his own right, an exile in his own day, an exile. Paul, an exile, once was a man esteemed, now to be mocked and hated. And I hate that, don't you? I don't want to be mocked and hated. Do you want to be mocked and hated? I mean, let's just, let's just for a minute be honest. I've met a lot of people through the years like, yeah, I just want to be beat up on by all God's enemies. I just want to, yeah, bring it. No, let's just quit pretending like we're on WWF at 11 o'clock on Friday night. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's, I just aged myself at Hulk Hogan and Bobby the Brain, all those. I mean, this is just entertainment. We're not wrestlers. We're not warriors. People, there is no room for warriors in the gospel of grace. And we hear that stuff. Especially as boys, man, we hear that stuff. I'm like, yeah, I want to be a warrior for Jesus. No, I don't. I do not. I want to be the painter for Jesus. I want to be the poet. Let me write the harpy songs. You stay over there and leave me alone. I'll work out over here in my little corner gym, and that's all the masculinity I need. I want to be boxing for Jesus for the love of all things crazy. I don't want to be hated. Peter, as an apostle, was hated. Read the book of Acts. 
And Jesus says, hey, listen, if they hate me, <laughs> are they ever going to hate you? Because I established my word in you. You've been cleansed by it. You've been made alive through it. And so as you then live out this word and as you share it, not in a bullying way, but in a blessed way, and when you share this and when you write these things <coughs> and when you teach and when you're humble, people are going to hate you even worse than they ever hated me because if they hate the master, they're going to hate the followers anymore because they can't touch me because they already did and I showed them. But they're going to touch you. They're going to take you. They're going to arrest you. They're going to what? They're going to destroy you. So here Peter, as an apostle of Christ, he is, he is talking to these Jewish people who have come to be born again by, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead who are exiles. But they're exiles not trash. They're seen as trash. They're seen as they're hated people. They're despised. But they're elect exiles. Why? Because you didn't get to stay in Jewish culture when you confessed that Christ is Messiah. You didn't get to hang out and just have it easy. It got worse and worse and worse. And the harder the religion pressed into the politics of society, the worse it got for people who did not renounce it. Now let me just say, with that being said, beloved, there are no believers in these United States who are being persecuted because of their humble resolve to believe the gospel of Christ. It is not happening. And I would love any true, real example that's not tied to some political platform of that persecution. So I'll just say that because some people say, yeah, we're being per You are not being persecuted in America because you believe the gospel. The best might be from the religious zealots and the theological watchdogs who will press you into a place of death because you don't agree with everything they say. But as a whole culture, eh, Christian submissions. And I'd say the evangelical culture, by and large, is more the oppressor and the persecutor than the persecuted and the oppressed. So here we are. And these people are suffering. I mean, we see it in the United States. We see people have to leave their homes because of fires. I mean, you got State Farm, though. I mean, everything's good, right? Just rebuild. We lost all those heirlooms. Oh, well, it's just stuff. It's just stuff. Let me see the news. If you watch the news or read the news, I skim in the mornings, and I haven't clicked through anything in a long, long time that perked, piqued my interest. And we see the, the death and destruction. We see the shootings and the stabbings and the killings and the hatefulness and all the stuff all over the world. It's just, you know, it's in our backyard. It's across the street. It's this state, that state, the other. It's in this country, that country, and the other. And, and it's just death and destruction. We see it. We see natural disaster. We see things happening all the time. So it's nothing new for people to have to just like get up and just leave. 
But imagine 2,000 years ago when everything you had and everything that you were able to do was taken away from you by force because you believed that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, what good comes from Nazareth, was raised from the dead. You really believe that? Well, you know what? You and your family can leave. We season this property in the name of God Almighty, the very one you say you could serve, and he's not here for you. So you take all of that people that are with you, and you just leave. Where are we going to live? Oh, I don't care. You just can't live here inside these walls. You can't live inside these properties. You can't. You got to go outside the camp. You got to go outside the the boundaries. You got to go outside society. Go get away from here. And if you don't, we're going to kill you all. And eventually, they did. So these people just had to get up, take what they could put in their tunic, and walk away. <clears throat> but Paul has something to say there. I mean, Peter has something to say there. Look at this. You are elect exiles of this dispersion. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Let me say this last line here. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, oh, Christian platitudes make me want to eat my shoes. <clears throat> Saying something to someone in word without Embracing their needs emotionally and physically is worthless. It's the same sentiment that we hear, thoughts and prayers, my thoughts and prayers. And I'm not mocking thoughts and prayers. But thoughts and prayers without hands and feet is just dumb. Action is love, not attitude. Not this internal, let me find some love in there. Yeah, I love you. I just wish the best for you. I wish the best. No, this is not Christian living. And sometimes, hey, grace and peace to you. God bless you. Doesn't feed you. It doesn't make you connect. It doesn't make you feel loved. Unless there's some teeth behind it, and there's some teeth behind what Peter has written here because he's writing to a people who are suffering greatly because of the gospel, and he too was suffering, and now <coughs> he knows what it means to be restored and for the love of God to manifest to him. And so he's about to address these people with more than just thoughts and prayers. He's going to show them the literal action of God. And so when we say things like that to people, we need to make sure that the emphasis of what God's grace is and has accomplished is at the forefront of what we're trying to illustrate. Sometimes terms by themselves are just insufficient. Just like we said apostle. We sometimes think, well, they're in charge. They're not in charge. They're the slaves of slaves. The messengers.
and could not make anyone do anything with any authority whatsoever given them by the Lord. They could call for it. They could even, by the words of Christ, command things. Like, you're not going to act this way. You're going to live this way. Stop doing this. The same thing is true for grace and peace. Grace and peace. I used to sign my emails with that for years. I'm like, people are like, okay, grace and peace. How about grits and cheese? I mean, does it have the same power? For most people, it does. Grits and cheese is a little more heartwarming. It makes you feel full. And I'm not making a lot of it. I'm just saying it's just we need to think about things a little bit. Not just say them. Not just go out there and go through these motions. Because half the time when we're in this robotic trap of Christian living, we're, no, we're doing nothing fruitful. So for Peter to say, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, then there must be something worth multiplying. I'm not a math genius, but I know if I got nothing and I put an exponent after it, it's still nothing. Unless there's some weird theoretical crap I don't know about. I'll talk to Trey about later. But, I mean, I think if you do anything in zeros and add zero to zero is zero. I mean, I don't get it. So how can there be nothing multiplied to me and make something? That's why according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling with His blood, there's something. That's grace and peace, and it's something. And we're not going to get through with all this today. That's something. And this is the reminder that I need right now, today, for everything that flows through my little gray matter up in here. And it shrinks by the hour. And if I need it, chances are maybe some of you need it. And if some of you need it, then somebody else that we know needs it. But we need it with teeth. We need it with hands. We need it with feet. We need the grace and the peace being multiplied to us with power, not platitudes. In Romans chapter 8, We see Jesus, I mean, we see Paul saying, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. We've heard recently in the last few months, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be what? Predestined for adoption. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, we see Dr. Luke write these words that Jesus would be delivered up to the, according to the definite plan of the foreknowledge of God. God says through the prophet Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I want you to think about that for a second. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, you are elect exiles. Do 
according to the love of God eternally, before there ever was anything to see with the eye, He knew you. And He loved you everlasting, for He does not change. Before you were, God loved you. Oh God, how I've screwed that up in my own life. There's so many ways in which in our infinite wisdom as intellectual idiots, we have come to parse and understand theological things. And if left un if, if left unbridled, we will come up with all sorts of interesting ways in which we would decide God is. And when it comes to the foreknowledge or the election of God, there, there's a lot of people who believe it's just this idea of, of arbitrary, eeny, meeny, miny, moe. I'm going to catch a tiger by the toe, you know, that kind of thing. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I really don't. <laughs> And then some people would say, well, you know, God is omniscient. He knows all things. So he knows all the free agency of every creature that ever shall be and every gnat and wind and feather and all this. So he's got knowledge of it at all times. So therefore he sees what will and he knows and elects to make that the plan. But that the Bible doesn't teach us that either. And then you get some really neat stuff where, you know, of all the timelines that could possibly be, God has elected this one. <clears throat> and then we're into some uh, Norse mythology and Marvel. Yes. I don't want to bog down with trying to figure out what God has not said about himself. I would rather just stand firmly upon the rock of what he's revealed. And that is that God in all ways, at all times, eternally has always had a people that he has loved. And he created this world that they might be glorified in him, in it. And I hate the reality... That it means every single thing about my life and your life in Christ is by the foreknowledge of God. But at the same time, I love that truth because therein can I rest in spite of me. God is not just digging into his foresight or predictive knowledge. But what the scripture teaches about God's foreknowledge is that it is an intimate, affectionate, authoritative, effectual love. We are not elect by chance or merit or blood. but by grace and the peace to be multiplied to us through Christ. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. 
Beloved, if you don't, if you don't get that, nothing else we talk about in these letters is going to really sink in. But do you see the rub? I've had it. I've, I mean, our building across town over there, you know? I've had people come after me after service and pull me to the side and get in my face and say, you had them! And then you let them go. <laughs> I'm like, what? Oh, man. The whole church was just breathless right there on the edge of just feeling that tension, that condemnation. And, and then you let them go. You told them God loved them. Should have buried that in a few weeks, you know, just let them know. Is that what we do to our children? We avoid them or dismiss them or belittle them. We make fun of them or mock them or roll our eyes at them until the point where they start to become really, really broken. And we see it and we go, you know what, serves them right. I'll just let them, I'm going to carry on just a little bit longer until they know what it means to be loved by daddy. <laughs> no. When we act like that as parents and it comes to them, we go, oh, I'm so sorry. <coughs> Don't judge the Heavenly Father based on me. We don't leave loved ones in the pressure pot. Matter of fact, we try to avoid them ever being put in the pressure pot. Take the pressure pot off. Take the lid, throw it away. Turn off the heat. Bring them into our presence. Sit them into our laps. Hold them into our bosom. This is the image of God the Father. And his motherliness. Nurturing. Caring. Feeding. Sustaining. Coddling. Boy, Jonathan Edwards needed to read more of the New Testament. You see? And it doesn't, it doesn't take away... God's righteousness, but God's righteousness is effectually, spiritually, judicially established in the death of Jesus. So there is no condemnation. There is no wag of the finger. Even in church discipline of the highest corrective order, which is expulsion due to unresolved, the unwillingness to resolve personal conflict and tension within relationships, because of pride and arrogance, even in that, we do it through tears, knowing that our whole point is that we might justly walk together in a loving way, despite our differences, so that we could set aside those things, set aside what we want, set aside everything that we think we must have, and everything that must be right in our eyes, because God has made everything right in His eyes in the death of Jesus Christ. I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but. That's the sanctification of the Spirit. The role of the Holy Spirit, sanctification. That's a word that we've used so much, we've forgotten what it means, and we don't understand a whole lot, but it literally means to be set apart for. And we've had a lot of theological decades behind us where we've got, well, there's two types of sanctification, and we've named them in all these professors who wouldn't know the grace of God if it drowned them in the ocean. 
It's something very weird about the clinical expression of God's love through systematic theology. Sometimes it's just so sterile. It's like opening up an alcohol wipe. It's very pleasing, but it has only one real purpose, to clean something with and then drop it in the toilet and watch it run around in a circle as it dissipates. You ever done that? Dip a Q-tip in there and pin the tub and watch it run? Like a little propulsion. The sanctification is literally being set apart for God's purposes. Yes, there is a practical sense in which we set apart our lives. Every single day, we set apart our lives in marriage, in relationships as parents. We set apart our lives. We set apart some of our income to pay our bills, some for saving, whatever. We set apart our attitudes, our minds, our thoughts, our hands, our actions. We set apart. We do all things for the glory of God, whether we eat or drink, whether we speak, whether we sing, dance, or moonwalk. It doesn't really matter. We are instructed to do so based on the teaching of God's love and grace toward us. That we do it all for his purposes and for his namesake. So sanctification... In a real and spiritual sense, is not a process. We're not going to become more righteous or more holy the longer we live. That's not okay because the Bible doesn't teach us that. It doesn't matter how many years you haven't used profanity. You might do well to tell somebody something sometimes. It doesn't matter how many movies you haven't watched or how many Christian books that you have read. Or how much you pray or how much you don't do this or don't do that. It's not about that. It's about the perfection of Jesus Christ credited to us. That his blood has satisfied the wrath of God and it is a finished work. We are sanctified forever, eternally, always in the person of Christ. God is satisfied in the death of Jesus Christ. And we know it so because he was raised from the dead. It was a, work, it was a working task. And the Spirit of God speaks and testifies to the ongoing work of God in our lives. And we do not sit down at the end of the day and go, okay, I know that I'm Christian because of these things in my life. I know that I'm, you know, moving toward holiness. No, let's set our day apart every day. And the worst thing that we could ever do is to sit in the mirror and say, wow! Thank you so much, God, that I have become so much more set apart in these areas of my life. That I'm not like these other people. You know, we're going to use a proof text. Make sure we understand the context. That was death. The one who says that is dead. The one who says that is condemned. The one who says that is not justified. The one who says, have mercy on me. Propitiate for me, oh, a sinner. This is the one who has the right mind. Yes, there is moral and spiritual transformation. There is growth in the context of our Christian life. But it is measured by one thing. One thing. How we actively love one another. That's it. Nothing else. Because the more we know about being set apart by the foreknowledge of God, in love, by the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, the more love we actively 
engage in in this life. God has chosen you to be the first fruits for salvation, Paul tells the church of Thessalonica. The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, etc. These are the things that the Spirit of God grows in us and puts in us and establishes in us because we are set apart in Christ. But these things ebb and flow. Remember we talked about posturing, we want to be like Peter and be like Paul and do these things. We can only do that for so long. We can only posture spiritual things for so long. We must be about the transformation of our hearts and minds through the constant meditation and discipline of the Word of God. And even when we've done well, we've not done good enough. Even when we perfected these things in the flesh, we are still only righteous by the Spirit of God. Because we haven't perfected them. <laughs> Paul would say in Galatia, you know, what are you going to be? You're going to start life by the Spirit and only now to perfect it in the flesh? Are you crazy? He literally says that. Are you crazy? Have you lost your minds? Has someone bewitched you? Have somebody put a curse on you? Has a magician come along and, and, and like cast a spell? How, are you insane? That you would begin by the Spirit and then continue in the flesh? No. We're not. But there is a call to obedience. There's a call to submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ as a servant who gave His life for us. You see, we're not to fear Christ. We're to love Christ. We're not to be scared of God our Father. We are to revere the reality of His righteousness and justice through the death of Jesus Christ for our sake. For our benefit, for our joy. We sang about that this morning already. And the response to true love is service. Serving the Lord Jesus Christ, obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. In what way must we be obedient? We must love our neighbor as ourselves. We must love our spouse as Christ loved the church. We must not be embittered because it is not the way of love. Oh, why can't we just get that cleaned out of us? Why can't we go through like a 10-day cleanse, a 10-day fast, a 10-day worship service, a 10-day prayer vigil, and then when all we're said and done, we've got it all out and there's never any bitterness or frustration our self-righteousness in us at all. We just, I am so free. Hallelujah. It's just not the way it is. We are slaves of the one whom we obey. Do we obey our flesh or do we obey the grace of God? In Jesus Christ. John 14, Jesus says, If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. These are that you have love for one another. They will know that you follow after me because you have love for one another. Be doers, not only hearers of the word of God. Have an act of living faith. 
Why? Because grace and peace being multiplied to you is established through the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, to whom we are servants, for he is a servant to us in salvation. We can be a servant to him in love. When you've done it under the least of these, my brethren, you've done it under me. And you realize the word brethren and the word man was not gender specific until like recently, right? Okay. It's my part-time job as an entomologist. We'll walk through that one day later. This Old Testament sacrificial system, this sprinkling of the blood, this covenant that we see in Exodus 24, symbolizing the atoning work of death as a symbol of the atoning work of the death of Jesus Christ. The mercy seat inside this ark of the covenant, this promise of God, this contract God made with himself to make a people for himself, to cleanse a people, this law, this killer of the brethren, this killer of of, of, of of sin, that we are all subject to the, the law of God. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. And we're all guilty over and over again of violating every one of these things. And that is held in this golden ark over which the lid now is these cherubim of righteousness, these guardians of holiness. And the blood of these pure animals as a symbol is sprinkled, it's poured over these things and forgiveness is symbolized for the day when Jesus Christ's blood was poured out. And forever we were made righteous once and for all. Forever we were sanctified once and for all. How much more then will the blood of Christ Cleanse us from our conscience of dead works. We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Grace to you and peace from him who is and was and is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. Priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. Revelation 1. May grace, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, So that your faith may be tested and preserved and result in the praise and glory and honor, the revelation of Jesus Christ that we just heard in John's Apocalypse chapter 1. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 
God has established your soul before Him. And you are an elect child, a recipient of the love of God, proven and effectual to you through the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, through whom we have access to this great and wonderful promise, even though for a little while, as we suffer exiles, we rejoice, even though it may be inexpressible. And those are the next six weeks of preachings. And nothing, nothing, Nothing can keep it from being multiplied to you. Even you, beloved. And that settles my soul. It settles my soul. Jesus said it is finished. And Tippins doesn't have to pick up the reins. For any of it. And my weakest discipline... And my greatest discipline is equally sufficient. Not sufficient. Because Christ's death has satisfied it all. Rest in that, beloved. Let this new year be a year of grace and peace multiplied to you. That's where I'm headed. Join me. Father, we are glad that you love us. And that you've given your son for us. Father, there is much in this world that is wrong. May we speak to those things as you call us. May we love those around us. May we stand in the gap for the unloved and the fatherless. Father, may every day and every moment of our day be about your love for us. Lord, soften us, guide us, mold us, and make us. As we know that we are truly righteous and sanctified fully and forever. Lord, help us to strive to do all things that please you. By being reminded of what you have done by loving us. And calling us into the light of your wonderful Son. It is by his death by his resurrection that we stand beloved free and hopeful for this is our hope you alone father in your promise in his name we pray amen let's take the table beloved